Hello and welcome. Today is the 20th of December 2020 and you are listening to the first ever episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nima Mihanyar, and joining me today is a man who made Judge Dredd question whether he was the law. It's Jorge Lamarca. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here and thank you, Jorge. So for all of our listeners, this will be a show where Jorge and I will get together and discuss the recent events and news within the cybersecurity industry and what's been happening. And occasionally we're going to have a couple of technical deep dives on interesting topics, which I think you all will find quite interesting. Now, we really encourage you all to please reach out to Jorge and I through social media and give us your feedback and comments as we really would like to take this podcast journey with all of you as well. Oh, there, there will be no shortage of opinion, man. You have to, you have to factor that <laughs> Definitely. in. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is obviously a new podcast. We do want to try to tailor make it also to our listeners' uh, whims. Whims are awesome. Whims is what we're here for, dude. It's also a Sunday. It's a whimsical podcast. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, let's go. Well, okay. let's, let's get let's into the okay. meat and potatoes. So, Jorge, today we have three very interesting stories that we're going to be covering as well. So, the first story, and obviously one of the most talked about events currently happening right now, and also for the year, is obviously the FireEye and SolarWinds recent hack as well that was recently discovered. Then after that, we're going to be talking about hackers hiding some credit card skimmers in CSS files, which is obviously a new attack vector and then finally we're going to be discussing the recent court order from a german court to Totanota trying to compel them to facilitate the acquisition of emails from a specific user in a blackmail case so i think it's going to be quite interesting yeah let's dive into it so the first story we have is going to be the solar winds hack. And for anyone who has been hiding underneath a rock for the last two weeks as well and hasn't been keeping up, a quick summary of this event, basically, it started around the 8th of December uh, when the security firm FireEye uh, said that a state-sponsored hacking group accessed their internal networks and stole pen testing tools and tried to access documents relating to their government contracts. Now, while investigating the breach, FireEye tracked down the intruder to a malware-laced version of SolarWinds Orion, which is actually a popular network monitoring tool used inside very large enterprise networks. I believe around 400 of the 500 Fortune 500 companies used them. Now, after being notified by FireEye, SolarWinds actually admitted as well to getting hacked and disclosing that several of their Orion application updates, which were released between March and June, contained the backdoor. Now, a day later as well, SolarWinds in a public SEC documents filing, uh, admitted that around 18,000 of their customers had installed the Trojanized updates as well, which obviously triggered a massive search inside enterprise networks all around the world, with IT personnel looking to see if obviously they had installed their malware-laced version, and also if a second stage malware payload was also used to escalate the attack as well. 
Now, we recently had some very interesting updates uh, in regards to this uh, event with Microsoft taking proactive steps to actually seize the web domain or one of the web domains that this threat group was using as a means to communicate to their command and control. So the web domain they seized was avsvmcloud.com as well, which is one of the domains used in the first stage of what is being called the Sunburst malware. And together with GoDaddy and FireEye, uh, they basically turned it into sort of a kill switch domain to try to prevent the malware from calling back to their command and control. Now, obviously, this proactive step will be good for any future victims, but anyone who's already downloaded the Trojanized version and had it communicate out to the command and control will not really benefit too much from this proactive step. But it's a, it's a step in the right direction to try and help the industry as well. Uh, yeah, so very, very impressive uh, effort, cooperative effort between several mid-profile companies and then higher-profile companies such as Microsoft. So Microsoft used their Windows Defender and Windows 10 infrastructure very, very effectively. I, I really enjoyed seeing the fact that push for Windows 10 actually made a huge difference in the response to SolarWinds. So it isn't all, you know, uh, about market integration and market domination and so on. There, there's a lots of really uh, good stories around this consolidation efforts by big companies to simplify the technology stack. So I do think Microsoft has been an overwhelmingly present force for good in this case. So very, very impressive response from them. Especially how they how they also staggered it, right? So there was a big operational disruption component because of the placement of this software. And then on the other hand, there isn't really, at least as far as I can tell, a precedent of a company like Microsoft being able to influence IT operations in so many clients at the same time in the context of an incident. So they chose what, in my opinion, is a very well thought out and spread out tactical response. And it was also really well communicated. I agree, definitely. And also just a, an important note that Microsoft also mentioned that they were obviously, as you mentioned, using their Windows Defender data stream to be able to identify potential victims. Because of course, as you've mentioned that uh, Microsoft has a wide net around the world. So they have a unique perspective on data gathering uh, abilities. So they mentioned that they've noticed that around 40 of their customers had the installed a Trojanized version of the SolarWinds application and also had the second stage malware, which would indicate that the threat actors and threat groups actually targeted those specific organizations for advanced intrusion and penetration as well. So obviously, uh, out of 18,000 potential organizations, Microsoft has identified 40, which they believe the threat actors actually took advantage of as well. And it's worth noting that, of course, with all the companies and security teams scrambling right now to determine if they've been impacted the vast majority of all of them will find a Trojanized version on their network, but that necessarily may not mean that their organization has been specifically targeted for advanced intrusion as well. So even though this uh, Trojanized version allows access and all companies should work proactively to patch and close that door, uh, it doesn't mean that the threat group has accessed those networks and uh, taken additional steps or st stolen data. It really does 
does seem that this threat group had a specific goal in mind, which in this case seems to be advanced espionage due to the type of targets that they actually went for and the lengths that they went to try to remain hidden as well. So of course, uh, this actual intrusion allows the threat groups to gain access, but once they gain access, they still need to actually carry out the reconnaissance on each individual network in order to be able to identify where the crown jewels are that they want and then to actually take proactive steps to get to that location, get the information and exfiltrate it out as well. So it's just worth keeping in mind as well uh, when the security teams are out there trying to triage this. Yeah. So really, really good shout as well on Twitter by Affable Kraut, uh, who's also going to be mentioned later on in the podcast with the skimming topic we're covering about this breach facilitating even further supply chain compromises, right? So obviously the big tech giants have the firepower to provide some extra assurance and heightened vigilance on their software, right? Which which is susceptible being trojanized and then result in those compromises, but also companies that have have historically cared a lot less about security, like, you know, marketing, targeting and retargeting platforms, ad delivery networks and so on, which were also on the list. And those seem like higher impact, lower effort targets. So it, it would be perhaps obvi obviously places like Cisco and whatever are extremely succulent, but then definitely the most, the most persistent threat might be accomplished by using platforms that are by, both run and consumed by industry players that truly and honestly don't care about security security at all. That's a very good point. And uh, regrettably, I think that uh, the vast majority of players out there as well probably fall into that latter category that you just mentioned, where they're not that conscious about security as well, compared to the companies which really take it seriously. But hopefully we'll see a shift in the industry as well, in that in the direction where companies take security much more seriously. So I think the takeaway from this for all of our listeners is just to be vigilant, uh, check your networks, but make sure about above all else that you patch, patch and patch this vulnerability because even if you don't find indications that your network has been breached by this threat group, the back door still remains there that they can use to access it. So make sure you close that door as well as quickly as possible. I think that's a really good shout. Supply chain compromise, especially at this layer, is particularly egregious and hard to defend, as opposed to the topic we're covering next, which is significantly easier to defend against. Exactly correct. So uh, that moves us on to our next story, which of course is an article by in CDNet, which is titled Hackers Hide Web Skimmers Inside a Website CSS Files as well. So what they're talking about here in this article was just that for the last uh, two years, cyber criminals have obviously used, as we know, different ways to hide credit card stealing code inside things like the fave icon, the site logos, and even in social media sharing buttons as well. But now they've taken it one step further and are starting to use CSS code to actually deliver their credit card skimming code, which is actually quite clever as well, because I don't know about you, Jorge, but every time I see CSS code, I just automatically assume that it's just related to the actual formatting of the website and it's generally harmless. Luckily, they don't have to deal with CSS code anymore and have had to do it for a long time. Uh, it does The CSS meme with Peter Griffin trying to open the blind and not succeeding is kind of, for me, the perfect metaphor for CSS and how complex and, and sort of cumbersome it can be, especially when you are not dealing with it constantly, right? 
Yeah, so December, extremely busy month uh, in terms of quote-unquote innovation for this mage card red groups. Two very, very compelling pieces of news in December, aside from, of course, leveraging CSS to inject a malicious card skimming payload, were both a remote access Trojan for Linux that was sloppily compiled and therefore leaked upon being reverse engineered the names of 41 e-commerce sites that were being targeted by the group. Of course, responsible disclosure on the part of the researchers in Santec, which did this piece of work, was done, which is excellent. Uh, another very noteworthy, as I was saying, one of the two highlights was uh, another few sites, I believe over 50 sites, that presented a four-part compromise that saw perhaps more industrialization or more DevOps acumen that we're used to seeing in this type of attack. So uh, specifically, it was centered around the card skimmer, obviously, but also a, a persistent backdoor, which was in, could be invoked by a post request, a persistent watchdog for that backdoor. And then to top it all off, there was also an admin credential sniffer. So not only did they did their usual do of, you know, injecting at checkout, so you know, carefully injecting the code to be as stealthy as possible. But also they had several layers of vigilance in terms of how they're able to persist, how they're able to iterate on their code, whether they've been caught and so on. So extremely interesting. Something to say for defenders, me being a defender myself, it can just help view all of these articles and papers and think to myself, well, we were talking earlier about supply chain compromise. And of course, card skimmers, the threat model for card skimming includes several vectors for supply chain compromise. But at any rate, there's a few common denominators or choke points in terms of the threat model that can be leveraged to find exposure fairly early. Of course, this all begins when one neglects to update or patch a web frame work, but that's not news to anybody and we will not go into that unless Nima, you want to talk about it. But uh, I, I would say the highlights for me in reading all of this literature is the back door in this case was noisy in the logs because he was using a deprecated function or a deprecated functionality of PHP, which is something you can reliably assume will not be present in abundance in this enterprise frameworks, right? Like OpenCart or Magento, etc. Then on the other hand, there was plenty of writing to the file system across the exploitation chain. And not only that, there are also some weird rights in the file system. So when you see that the process responsible for running your e-commerce application is writing a binary to a public-facing directory or a directory within your document root, that's that's a quite reliable indicator that something might not be working as it should, right? Especially if you have some sort of control over your release and patch windows, right? On the other hand, the information was being concealed in files that were named with varying degrees of caution. Like for example, some were concealed in files like a JPEG, right? So a, a JPEG was written to a document within the document root. And that, well, I'll grant you, you have to have a fair bit of DevOps discipline to be able to actually reliably tell the noise from the signal in that case. But for example, uh, some variants of this were writing to the git ignore file in the piece of the document. So a repository in folder within the document root, right? That definitely should not happen outside of an update window. So. I would say things like this, things like, again, poor stripping or even comments within decompilation in, in those rats that facilitate the initial compromise or a second stage to initial compromise, typos in functions, poor choices of files to conceal the dumped 
credit card information. Things like this are still present all across the exploitation chain, which makes me think defenders have, I wouldn't say no excuse, but they do have some opportunity to do some very rudimentary monitoring and detect what's happening. I'm going to put in the show notes a couple of links that in my opinion are great. Uh, The first is the PCI security standard section for e-commerce. The best part of this paper is not necessarily the proposals for defense, which are suitably vague for the type of paper, but in my opinion, it's more about understanding the threat model for e-skimming and specifically how designing those solutions from scratch and making technical decisions based on business requirements as to how to implement can actually implement to make their lives easier down the line in terms of defense. That's great. We'll give our listeners a couple more PCI documents to read. They'll love us for it. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll include that. I'll include a couple of tweets by uh, Affable Kraut. Also, uh, a link to uh, an old but very nice tool that does statistical review on JavaScript code to actually infer what the variable names could have been. So very nice. just the update and et cetera, et cetera, those skimmers. So uh, j- just a few links that are useful. But again, I think that PCI uh, PDF is great in terms of understanding uh, the general landscape and how you can actually design, not just for your business requirements in terms of maintainability, customizability, and so on, but also to defend properly, to make your life easier, or, to, or rather to make good security easier to do which is kind of ultimately the, the, the most reliable you know defense practice exactly don't overcomplicate it as i say and i suppose it being you jorge these tools that you're going to uh, recommend are open source or free right no in this case well are you, are you seeking to to turn me into a meme this quickly okay fine <laughs> I think that's inevitable anyway. I'm not. I'm not super concerned. No. No. In, in this case, it's just it's just a code for a reimplementation of the very old tool JS Nice. So it, 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 it was kind of cool to try it out uh, on my own computer, do it locally, and so on. So just 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 to piggyback on your joke there, I actually did it locally, which is nice. Uh, you can also do it on the internet. Just goes to jsnice.org. Uh, be mindful that that is just somebody else's computer. But at the same time, usually what you're doing is trying to deobfuscate code that is otherwise present in R articles and stuff like that. If you actually do find a skimmer in the wild and you are reasonably sure that that might be a recent iteration or even a custom-made skimmer, very simply, don't put it in there. Review it on your own. Try to deobfuscate it on your own. There's actually platforms that can help you do that. I'll put, I'll put the GitHub repository for the local implementation in the show notes. Fantastic. Well, one thing we can definitely say is that no matter what you actually say about the bad guys, no one can say that they lack imagination with all these different different uh, techniques that they're always coming out with. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, again, uh, I think the bottom line is if somebody is writing to your file system, if somebody is writing to the production portion of your file system, there is absolutely no excuse for you to be able to tell exposure. I'm not saying detect the initial compromise. I'm saying exposure. So once your customers are being attacked, you should be able to tell in, in most cases, especially if your e-commerce site is running on top of a framework like Kubernetes and so on, where you have like a native audit framework, like Linux has one as well. Windows has one as well. But in the case of Kubernetes, it's a native facility that you can configure with relative ease. And there's lots of resources out there as well that you can use as templates. So much in the same spirit as you can use very famous Sysmon configurations present all over the place. There's also lots of resources in GitHub for Kubernetes audit and so on. So actually just reviewing the integrity, persistently monitoring the integrity of your production files, be those delivered by a third party, like a, a cache a cache provider, 
etc., Cloudflare, etc., or be that delivered by you, I think there's no excuse in delivering a Trojanized version of your own assets, right? Because those are changed. They're changed in a, in a place where you can tell they've been changed at a time that you can actually tell they should not be changed and so on. Exactly. So I think just as to round off this story as well, if you guys want to also protect yourselves from these kind of credit card skimming attacks as well, then one of the methods that you guys can, of course, use as well is to use things like virtual cards as well, or specially designed card numbers, which are designed for one-time payments, or they can obviously be used on that site. So even if the bad guys are able to get your credit card information, the data is basically useless once the virtual card itself expires as well. So it's a great way to basically protect yourself and try to frustrate some bad guys, which we all like doing at the end of the day. Yeah, and also something very interesting you can do is if your bank actually allows you to tune 2FA as a persistent requirement and you're comfortable with it, you should do it as well. Of course, most serious banks offer 2FA, but they also soften whether they require 2FA based on the type of client, the risk profile of the client, the type of transaction and so on. But enforcing 2FA on your cards across the board, especially if there's a push-based uh, 2FA facility in the application for your bank, is also a great way to do it. I think I think your advice there is is slightly more geared towards the privacy focused as well, because how many people out there, even listeners of this podcast, are, are likely to be using privacy.com and so on. I'll admit I don't use that. Uh, that when, when I explored Entropy and so on, my main driver for that was more the privacy angle rather than safety online as well, uh, because I'm using credit cards for almost all of my transactions anyway. And historically, I've had twice the occurrence that my cards were used in a company compromise POS or something like this. Uh, but my banks were stupendously fast refunding me the money and correcting it all together. So I, I would say I would say 2FA and specifically if you can enable 2FA is, is the measure that is likely to be the most beneficial to the most people, if that makes sense. 2FA is something that we definitely encourage and love as well if you guys have the option to enable it. And of course, it's, it's correct that, you know, regrettably not the vast majority of the population is using these virtual cards. Uh, and if you guys, the listeners, have any recommendations for any good virtual card providers here in Europe, by all means, feel free to shout out to us as well as we would love to check them out. Right. That, that's actually an advantage of having a podcast. You actually can get good tips from people out there. I, I forgot about exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Dude, yeah. Let, let, let's, get, let's get some good suggestions on that. I'm, I'm so open to that. So the last story we have as well for today is an interesting one coming out of Germany. So a regional court in Germany has basically ordered the end-to-end -end encrypted email provider Tutanota to monitor one specific account belonging to a user who is under suspicion in a blackmail case. Now, although Tutanota says that they plan to actually appeal the November ruling, which came from a regional court in Cologne, arguing that basically it contradicts an earlier decision from another German court, they still, of course, have to abide by the court's decision while the appeal is being heard, which means that they have to develop the monitoring functionality by the end of this year as well. So this is an interesting case because as we know, there is a battle of ideologies right now between governments and the tech sector over end-to-end -end encryption. And the tech industry likes to obviously think that we have logic and reason on our side. But we have to remember that the government obviously has the law on their side. So it will be an interesting one to see how it unfolds. And this case is just going to be another battle and the ongoing war as well.
Definitely, yeah. And Tutanota has every intention of appealing the outcome of that ruling. Uh, however, they will comply. And I think that's actually a good thing that they will comply. We, we do want companies that know their customers, respect their privacy and abide by the law. So it, just, just in terms of the vision for what a future could be, in my opinion, this isn't such a bad thing. Uh, I think a lot of outlets out there uh, have it also refining the story because in the beginning, so th- this story is from the beginning of the month, actually. And in the beginning, obviously, all of the typical BuzzFeedy places where we're we're spreading kind of misinformation out of a lack of an understanding of what's actually going on. In in reality, so assuming Tutanota, I'm definitely not getting to the debate of whether Tutanota is actually a zero-knowledge provider. Assuming Tutanota is a zero-knowledge provider, they are unable to comply with most of the desires of a typical three-letter agency investigation. However, in this case, the investigators knew that incoming email is indeed unencrypted, as opposed to email from from Tutanota to Tutanota, email that is from Tutanota to other providers using their encrypted email feature, etc. Right? So they were demanding strictly incoming email that was clear text, which is basically most incoming email or all incoming email for most cases. It was only related to one account and it's going to very much be an ad hoc data dump they're going to facilitate for the investigation for only that account and the duration of time for which this would be relevant. So I, I hardly think this is a compromise of Tutanota's stance. I think this is just a, a, an early days example of how governments will actually compel zero-knowledge plaf- uh, platforms to disclose information. I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I'll, I'll, I'll share the link also in the show notes, posted an article quite a long time ago, I think in May this year, in which they were talking about the debate around zero-knowledge platforms and responsible disclosure and the judiciary or rather courthouses and so on compelling companies to disclose their information. I, th- I think in, in a very real way, people who have devoted their lives to things different than technology have a poor understanding of the real possibilities around producing backdoors, reliable backdoors, and keeping platforms secure. That said, I don't buy that it is technically impossible to facilitate the backdoor and keeping the platform secure at large from abuse of that backdoor. However, it is kind of a debate in my opinion, whether the fact that the technical possibility exists of interception, that doesn't mean that we should actually be leveraging all of its potential for good or bad. I would say that debate is very much open in many other areas, like should we genetically manipulate XYZ, even if we can, right? Or should we should we actually respect people's right to discreetly or covertly communicate leveraging this open technology because up until now the forces of law and order could actually had to basically give up right depending on the situation so the the techniques for interception in traditional surveillance were always touch and go always there was they were always probabilistic i guess is my, my point right so back then they had maybe six or seven ways they could intercept any one flow and they would try one after the other fail sometimes win sometimes and so on here what is very much been pursued by governments of places like India, the US, Australia, and so on, is, oh, because there's an electronic medium that goes someplace that is under somebody's control, that is under our jurisdiction, we now can industrialize the craft of surveillance, right? And that, to me, is not a foregone conclusion. Like, this has to be an open debate about what features of the technology are we interested in pursuing and what features are we not interested in pursuing. 
Yeah, completely, and I I agree with uh, with many of those points as well. Uh, from my point of view as well, I I agree as well that obviously if the industry wanted to get together and be able to create a technology technological means to uh, facilitate this type of quote unquote backdoor for the government, that we have a lot of talented people, and I'm sure that we would be able to come up with something as well. But I think that also a lot of my sort of resistance to this as well stems from the fact that even though obviously a government like the US or the UK may request this and we may have to a certain degree confidence in the fairness within these democratic nations it wouldn't stop another country like China or Russia from also requesting the same thing and of course in those situations their motivation for being able to eavesdrop and be able to obtain any communication that they want uh, in my opinion of course uh, would be much more questionable as well and of course uh, the the argument also extends the fact that if uh, we obviously mandate these type of backdoors in communication systems the only people that the governments will basically be able to see the communications of are really law-abiding citizens because at the end of the day the technology of encryption itself and the understanding of how it works is already out there so the so the bad guys will obviously those who we are actually interested in in and actually uh, apprehending will just basically switch and develop their own in-house encryption communication methods which the authorities still won't be able to crack so i think it's a very interesting debate as well it'll be interesting to see how it plays out it's definitely not anywhere near the end no, definitely. But there, there's also another angle to this, which is the stage at which it's done and the way in which it's done. I think I think requesting a backdoor is already very telling of your approach to your craft and your your objectives. Like if you go to openli.nz, you will see an example that, of course, doesn't map one to one or maybe all the points aren't applicable. But at any rate, openli is an example of lawful interception done in an open and honest way. So in this case, the government of New Zealand, and this is a story from early last year, by the way. So we are we're invoking a lot of oldies but goodies in this in this show. That's how we like it. Oh, definitely we like them, yeah. So <laughs> uh, the New Zealand government imposed some regulation on ISPs that forced them to do lawful interception at a scale and cadence that was incompatible with their operations. They needed both TIN to do it, and they also needed software to do it. So a bunch of them actually teamed up to finance the production of an open source GPL v3 piece of software that would actually do lawful interception for everybody's benefit and the community's benefit as well. So anybody can use it and deploy it and so on. Obviously, it's all GPL. L3 goodness in that sense. But at the same time, it's done at a stage and in a way that it can be well understood, researched, scrutinized, and audited from the outside. So it's not about necessarily putting backdoorsing things or compromising technology's design, or much worse, deviating the incentive structure of brilliant people pushing the technology forward with the wrong ideas, but rather facilitating this in a practical and operationally sound way that doesn't weaken the integrity of any one tool in the tool set, if that makes sense. So I do encourage your listeners to go to OpenLI, to look at the code, to look at the story, very compelling story. So again, this is 2020, barely. And <laughs> we have really good examples of this being done correctly. Thank God it's almost the end of 2020 as well, <laughs> after the year we've had. 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of a, I'm very sorry. I know this is not very relatable, but I am a quarantine winner, to be honest. Like in, in 2020, I changed countries, changed jobs, got a new partner. It was kind of a, so all the crap that happened was compensated by spectacular stuff on my end. I really can't pretend that 2020 sucked from my perspective. I hope many of our listeners can also relate to that as well. Hopefully, yeah. So I think uh, we can wrap this up for our first ever episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. We hope that you guys really enjoyed it as well. And please do reach out to us and give us your, your feedback of what you thought of the episode and uh, what type of topics you would like us to cover in the future episodes or any ideas for technical deep dives that you guys would be interested in that we can obviously look into as well. Thank you, everybody. So from both of us, we, we wish you a happy Christmas, a Merry Christmas. In fact, a happy new year. In this case, for sure, a happy new year. And we look forward to an eventful 2021. For sure, no shortage of work for security professionals. So we wish you all a good day, a good week, and a uh, happy time. <laughs> no, 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 they're, they're that no, we oh are God. leaving that in 100%. Yeah, that, that was the end of it. that. Okay. Okay. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.